Hello and welcome back to season 1 of the Inclusive Bookshelf where we explore the reading journeys of some phenomenal diverse writers who have shaped how we read social justice inclusion and intersectionality. I'm your host Zenia and every episode I will speak to one such author about books that have been pivotal in their life and strongly influenced their thought and work. So stay tuned for some brilliant book recommendations and let's dive right in. In today's episode we speak to Easterine Kire, a poet and author who currently lives in northern Norway. The majority of her writings are based in the lived realities of the people of Nagaland in northeast India. She is known for groundbreaking award-winning titles such as A Naga Village Remembered, A Terrible Matriarchy, When the River Sleeps, amongst others, and is the first Naga author to have published an English novel. Apart from writing, she also performs jazz poetry with her band Jazz Poesy. In this episode, Easterine talks about some remarkable books from Amos Tutuola's The Palm Wine Drinker to Chinua Achebe's The Arrow of God. She draws intriguing parallels between the indigenous literatures of the world and explores the importance of own voices and oral traditions of storytelling. We also ponder on the coexisting fluidity and rigidity of the English language and how subverting the rules can be seen as a powerful act of dissent. Hi Easterine, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon to you. <laughs> and we are super excited to talk to you about what we all love the most, which is books. So mm-hmm. I think we could get started. So yeah. Easterine, you were the first Naga author to ever publish a novel in English with a Naga village remembered. I wanted to ask you, growing up, what were your thoughts on the lack of representation for the stories of your peoples, your lives, your cultures within mainstream literature? Actually. I'd always been a big reader as a child, uh, but not given much thought to the act of writing. And it was only when I went to university at the age of 20, 21, that I started to write short stories. And it was also at university that I was exposed to uh, writing from from Africa. So Uh that was what inspired me because... I saw that the African writers were able to write in an Afrocentric way. And uh, yes. that inspired me, encouraged me to think about writing of my culture, my uh, people in mm-hmm. my own way. So that's how it's, it all started. Okay, so so when you were a child, when you were growing up, what were your own reading horizons like? If you did read whatever you read, especially because you were surrounded by so many rich oral narratives and a very deep-rooted culture of storytelling. So was that more of an oral, you know, reading that that you did as a child? I think I was very fortunate that my grandfather was an educated man and he brought many books and always encouraged us to read it. And we would spend Saturday afternoons just hanging out on the the (laughs) porch and with several books and we would do our reading. And then my grandmother was a storyteller. So in the evenings after dinner, we would have this session, a wonderful, wonderful session of oral storytellings. And uh, we heard she loved to tell us uh, folk tales. And also I grew up in the 60s. So that was very close to, very close to the oral tradition. And um, people would come from the village and they would come and visit my grandparents. And you would always hear snippets of conversation, which was mysterious, exciting. And as huh. a child, you're not supposed to be part of the conversation. So 
you yeah. hear these things, you hear about spirit encounters and uh, it touches you and uh, it, it arouses your curiosity. So I had influences of both, both written and the oral. Do you remember any of these moments where, you know, a story particularly stuck with you or you still remember it to this day? From yeah, time? yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. Grandmother used to tell us uh, one story that she we always pestered her to tell us, you know, because the thing with children is you don't want a new story every night. You want to hear one story, one favorite story over and over again. So she used to tell us an, yeah, an Assamese folk tale of all things. Okay. So yeah, yeah, and she had also Naga folk tales, but it's she had studied in an Assamese school in Golagat, so she I brought see. back some Assamese stories. So I'm grateful we had such a variety of stories to listen to, and then. My grandfather gave us many stories from the Bible because he was a Bible teacher, so mm-hmm. stories from the Old Testament. That was also part of the repertoire. That sounds yeah. lovely. I it, it reminds me of my father coming up with stories on his own because mm-hmm. I used to finish up all the stories that he told me and I used to always be hungry for more. So so he had to make mm-hmm. stuff up and come yeah. up with new stories every night. It was really sweet. Lovely. Um, So, in our earlier conversation, you have mentioned a few books that have truly stayed with you over your reading journey and perhaps influenced your own writing as well in some ways. I have been reading up about these titles and they they sound incredible. So, I wanted to talk about these books and, and, you know, why they are important to you, what you think about them. So, so let's dive in to that. Um, First book that you spoke about, Palm Wine Drinkard and, and... drinkard and not drunkard which is what is the whole yeah, yeah, um, exactly. you know by Amos Tutuola if Amos that's the correct Tutuala. yeah Tutuala yeah, he's, he's right. a Nigerian Tutuala yeah Tutuala yeah could you tell us about the story yes. and, and your thoughts on it yes Amos Tutuala he only had about six years of education of formal education and then he wrote this wonderful, amazing book called The Palm Wine Drinkard. And uh, it was entrenched in the oral tradition. And it was with him for some, I think, six years at least. And he sent it off. No, no. It was with him for some time. And then he sent it off to a publisher. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was eventually, eventually it was published because they found it so amazing. And it is an amazing story if you've read and it. different very different very different and coming out in 1952 at yes. a time when there were so many stereotypes about africa and africans and Absolutely. Uh, coming out at that time it was revolutionary because uh, the kind of english that he used was not the king's english but <laughs> yes. the queen's english but was really very native English and he was doing what Arkinarayan was doing much later but then it was even more extreme than what Narayan did because he was really bending the syntax. So the effect that you get is uh, here is a book that's written in English but really it's like you're reading it in an African language. 
And, and that's what's so wonderful about it. And then because he employs that in a very natural way, in a very spontaneous way, then the stories that he writes about, and he writes a lot about ghosts. He goes into the bush of ghosts. The spirit world. All, all that, yeah, all those amazing things. They become believable because of the language he, he uses to describe it, because of the Africanness in his telling. So many, many people initially thought it was a it was a badly written book, but actually there's so much art in that and so much genius in it. Yeah. And you uh-huh. you commented on the word drinkard and uh, yeah. not drunkard. And that was that and many other words. Those are his contributions to English, to colonial English. And it's so nice because it comes with its own flavor. It comes with its Yoruba. He's from the Yoruba tribe. So it comes with that, yeah, the Yoruba flavor. And you will see many writers doing the same thing afterwards because suddenly the Oxford Dictionary has to expand because there's so many Hindi words in it, for example, or words from African languages are in it, and they just have to expand and and accommodate all those words. And why not? Exactly. If Shakespeare could make words, yeah. then why can't yeah. uh, anybody from other countries? I I was actually, mm-hmm. I haven't read the book, but I was reading the plot of the book and, and some reviews. Yeah. And the plot itself mm-hmm. sounds mm-hmm. so wonderfully bizarre. Uh, could you tell us a little yeah. about the plot and the kind of themes that he talks about? Because I was yeah. so struck by the, the whole absurdity of it. Mm. No, I'm not very comfortable talking about the plot because... Uh-huh. What he's done is he's followed the oral tradition, and it almost is structureless, so you can't apply Western structures to it. Ideas of a plot, yeah. You wouldn't do it justice if you tried that. Uh-huh. But it is one story, and then it develops into so many other stories, and yet the thread is one and the same from page one and uh-huh. it's marvelous he opens out this whole uh, spiritual universe of of the yoruba and uh, he also as he does that he's what he's doing is he's re- revealing the culture to us uh-huh. revealing yeah the value system of their culture to us and uh, if we don't know that if we come with a very western mindset we Oh, what is the story? It's so ridiculous. But it's not. You said bizarre, but bizarre in a good kind of way. In a good, in the because, best kind of way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just have to to stop thinking the way you've been taught to think at school. And uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And get into yeah. the way he thinks. It's lovely. Yes, I was reading his interview as well and, and mm-hmm. it just, it felt like his whole purpose in life was to just listen to stories and tell stories and mm-hmm. he used to go to the village and record stories and, and ask people to come uh-huh. to his house, you know, kind of tempt mm-hmm. them with wine and and then listen to yeah, stories yeah, and yeah. I was so in awe of this kind of a life. I would love to lead that kind of a life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but then speaking of the English, the thing is that his whole, you know, his 
rejection of the norms of the english language was definitely a topic of contention though when the book released in in that yeah. time and and you've already spoken yeah. about it and and the weird thing was that some of his nigerian contemporaries were not in favor mm. of it whereas it was well yeah, received yeah. in other countries he's spoken about it and um, his son has also spoken about how he essentially wrote english like he thought in yoruban so he used to just mm. so like you said you get their entire you know the entire beauty of the language and the culture so as someone who translates oral narratives you have translated so many poems and could you tell us some more on your thoughts on this on on this whole sort of rigidity of english and how it plays into these stories when you have to write stories from these locations actually it's wrong to think that english is a rigid language because it exactly. is amongst world languages is the most malleable and uh, it has borrowed so much and it's allowed mm-hmm. itself to be used very widely as well as to be abused because what other languages do to it or speakers of non native speakers of english what they do to it is they abuse it but in a <laughs> in a in a nice way in a polite way and they stretch it stretch english to its limits and it works because that is the quality of english and uh, in post colonial uh, books like the ones we've mentioned uh, tutuala mm-hmm. of course and achebe and gogi you see a lot of this you also see it in the works of naipaul and then um, australian writing so all the colonies that have been under the british empire at one point they have all got their own kinds of english you go okay. to singapore there'll be another kind of english and yet it is english and at some point the english realize can't do anything about it forget about rp rp is received <laughs> pronunciation so indian english is totally acceptable and uh, there are people writing books in indian english and the dialogue is not authentic because it is indian english the way certain words are used and certain terms are used in india that sort of thing it's amazing it's very interesting nativized english and it's what we stuck with <laughs> yes and and i feel like i shouldn't have said that english is rigid but people's views about english are rigid mm-hmm. i have had my That's you know true. teacher correct me so many times about you know you shouldn't be yeah. using this don't use this don't use that and that's how we, because we are taught yeah. the queens english in school right so that's yes. the the sad part i think because as a language itself it is very malleable you are right we speak in five languages at the same time within english <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's it's beautiful yeah, 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 yeah. you're not ro- wrong about that about rigidity because it has its own grammar and we can't really abuse the rules of grammar but beyond that we are able to bring in the structure of our native languages and superimpose it on english mm-hmm. so that that's a quality that i haven't seen in other languages i, I don't have an experience that in other languages yeah that's true english is very interesting in that way also tutuola was the first nigerian author to publish a novel in english which is such an interesting parallel with your story is is i suddenly realized <laughs> that 
and also critics have spoken about how Tujola's portrayal of Yoruban folklore and myths present a very oversimplified or a stereotypical view of indigenous cultures in Africa. A lot mm-hmm. of Nigerian critics had spoken about this at that time. They were worried that this would play into mm-hmm. the stereotypes that right. the West already right. had about them. But a lot of other people have remarked at his ability to sort of marry the mythic with the modern mm-hmm. and create his own yeah. tales. He wrote his own stories, which were somewhere yeah, between yeah, the... Yeah. Yeah, between the realms of fantasy and science fiction. Where do you think this sort of a novel, where do you think its place is within genres and within world literature? Again, that's something that we really have to work on because we're always trying to put things into boxes and I'm very (laughs) anti-box. Something has to fit into a slot. that's, That's a big problem with university educated people, I think. We have to recognize that Amos Tutuala was doing something so much greater. It was a declaration of independence. Mm-hmm. And he was, I don't know how fully aware he was of that, probably not as aware as we think, as we are today. But the move that True. he made and then the decision to write in the way that he wrote, what he did was really to create another, a totally different genre of literature and uh, yes yes african writers some of them were worried about the stereotypical picture that he would be representing but wallace oinka was full of praise for him and wallace oinka writes beautifully he writes so much better than than an english writer the intellectuals of africa Mm -hmm. of that time they appreciated him so those who did not appreciate him those who did not see his genius, I can just think that they were lesser men than Sayinka. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. I, I haven't read the book, but I read the extracts and yes. I think I'm going to buy the mm-hmm. book that's available here. I don't yeah. think it is, but I'll find a copy yeah. somehow. Or get it on Kindle. Yeah, yeah, because I love... Get it on I Kindle. Love... It's so easy. Yeah, yeah, I'll get it. I'll try to get it on Kindle because I love the, I really like the way there is no, you know, he hasn't really followed, like you said, the the formal elements of English entirely. And it's so fun to read something like that after reading so many books by so many white authors, uh, my whole Mm -hmm. childhood and and teenage. Mm -hmm. So we can perhaps move on to the second book that you spoke about, which was Arrow of God by Chinua Achebe. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us uh, a little about that book and the story? Yeah, I haven't read it in, I think the last time I read it was 20 years ago when I was (laughs) teaching it. That is a wonderful, wonderful book and the other book that the first book that Chinuachi wrote, Things Fall Apart. Things Fall Apart. Yes. Every university student should read that. It's marvelous. Mm-hmm. And uh Chinuachebe was of course very, very uh, well educated. So he doesn't write in the same manner as Tutuala, but he brings so much of his culture and then what he does is chronicles chronicles the social, cultural, and political history of of Nigeria, of especially of the Igbo, his Igbo tribe. Crimes. So, yeah, yes, yes, because he was part of the Biafran War, he was affected by it, and then he left for the U.S., where he, uh, he lived 
and then died. So uh, here's here's a man whose life just reflects so much of history, so much of Nigerian history. You can read Nigerian history into his life and the way right. he, he lived his life. And also he was intent on writing an Afrocentric, Afrocentric history or Afrocentric literature and leaving that behind for future generations. So there's so much when you, so much information, so much knowledge and so much wisdom when you read his books because I understand that uh, Chinua Achebe was a great listener of stories. He loved, he was, he, he had a Christian background. His parents were Christians, but he loved it when people would come from the villages and tell stories. And he just said, as a child, he just said, listening to that. So that was what he imbibed. And that's what you see, you know, you see both Christian elements and then you see the, the tribal stories come alive in his writing. Right. Aruf, yeah, Aruf God is sad and tragic and beautiful in the way that only a great tragedy can be beautiful. And, and it's, uh, if you want to understand Igbo history, read that book, I would say. Read that book and read Things Fall Apart. They, they're really marvelous. Because before that, you only had books that were outsiders writing about the Igbo. It was never the Igbo writing about themselves. And that's so important. Absolutely. Um, and we have, yeah, we've had that problem with the Nagas that we were written about by so many people, by Western anthropologists or political officers from India coming in and writing about the society. Only very lately have we begun to write about ourselves. And then you get a different perspective altogether. And that's a very, very important perspective. Absolutely. It's, it's, I think that's, that's something that every reader realizes while reading uh, the, the massive amount of difference that it, that it makes when it's somebody writing about their own community and their own life and when it's somebody writing from, from that outsider's point of view, which is pretty much all, all the uh, books about India that were written before. Even within India, uh, the various hierarchies that are there of caste, of gender, of class, it's always the observer and the observed, uh, the people being observed. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah. I think this is a very important study of ethnography as well. And Chino Achebe was also possibly the initial bridge between Western bookshelves and African literatures, mm-hmm. right? So there a lot of people have spoken about how he had this really impressive ability to weave together indigenous dialects and cultures with a prose, like you said, he wrote very differently from someone like Tutuola. His prose was, uh, you know, more modernist and uh, perhaps that was the reason why his work was received in a particular way by a very Anglo-critical establishment that was present in the in the 60s. So I wanted to ask you, what are your views on this particular line of thought as someone whose work revolves around stories of indigenous cultures and history? When you're writing about these cultures in English and presumably for Anglophone audiences, do you think that the writer feels a, a sort of a need or a pressure to bring in a certain anglicization to their work or their language? Do you think that happens? 
I'm, I'm sure that happens some stage or the other. But um, I want to talk about what I feel and what my opinion is. And the greatest damage that a writer can do to himself or herself is writing according to the expectations of other people. Because somebody or the other comes along and says, you should write this and you should write about that and write about this. It doesn't work like that. What mm -hmm. you write has to come from your heart. And the narrative that you decide to use, the voice in which you want to write the story, all these should come from the writer. You should be comfortable with it. You should not really never bow to expectations or demands, even if it's if, even if it's your publisher or editor. If you feel strongly in your heart that what you're doing is right or what you're following is right, just be stubborn, be obstinate, and yeah, really, because <laughs> I've discovered that is what works, that you believe in yourself. Don't let people pull down that belief. Right. You're the author. You have to... You have to write it the way you want to write it. And that's what will work if you write it according to the way they, they ask you to write it. It's not going to work. It's not spontaneous anymore. It's not original anymore. So that's not going to work. Right. It won't be authentic to what your vision for the book. Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. Although it's unfortunate that a lot of times authors are sort of really pressurized into writing a certain way especially when we come from communities which are not western which are not white you know a lot of people write for audiences which are white because they want their books to reach those audiences and and like you said that's that does a great damage to the work itself and yeah i really hope it does, that it does hope that we build a world where everybody can write whatever they want to without having to cater to the power structures of of the world yeah. of the reading world but anything else that you would want to share about this particular book that has stayed with you or that has really you know stood out for you about arrow of god um, it'd be too much it's been a long time since i read it so i don't mm -hmm. want to be offhand about it i just have a lot of respect for this writer and um, he was such an inspiration to me when i was a university student i started to write my first uh, short story. So that that's how close Junior Achebe is to me. I found something today, if I can find it again. Here it is, it's a Nigerian, young Nigerian actor. And she says, she, she set up something called Bantu Creatives. And she says, okay. too often we have been told what our story was, is, or will be, but now we can set the stage and shift the focus. So this is what is happening. And this was started by people like Tutuala and Chinua Achebe. It's a wonderful legacy because the young ones, not just writers, but actors are carrying that legacy forward. So it's already happened. We, we don't have to write for, the, the target audience has already changed. We are writing for ourselves. We are writing Perfect. for our people. And then that's where you get the authentic stuff, the the asli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, this... 
I have been watching some shows which are written and directed by women. They are so different mm-hmm. from all the shows we've watched, which have been directed by men and have had women or non-binary characters. It's just, it's really beautiful. I'm loving this revolution that's happening. Thankfully, so okay, so we can move on to the third book. This book was also very intriguing. A House for Mr. Bishash by V. S. Naipaul. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the the story, and it sounds like yet another really, really sort of an offbeat story. That mm-hmm. that, and it's a long story. I think. Could you tell us about the story? And it's a huge book. <laughs> I, <laughs> I won't. I don't want to do it the injustice of condensing it. But the thing that I love about uh, Nepal's book, this one in particular, I don't much care for the other books, but this is brilliant. He talks about the importance of land to a migrant and mm. the the protagonist is a is the son of a landed laborer so owning a portion of land that was so important to them then legitimacy um is is so important having a legal status so in somewhere in the book there's somebody le- sitting by the wayside selling birth certificates and uh, the, the character's mother goes to him and gets birth certificates for all her four children this is a th- third world country where such things are are important yet uh, they seem so everyday they seem so mundane yeah. so yeah but he, but he brings that in beautifully and just how all of his life is a failure but he manages to get his portion of earth and it's it's every man's story then because that's what everyone struggles for to get property to get land to get a piece of land to call their own um, right. and um, maybe it happens that that is the piece of land that they buried in but um, it just is um, the state of humanity of a human being how how small it is <laughs> <laughs> in the largest yeah, yeah right yeah that that and then and yet because of the smallness because everyone's life sort of rotates around that you can understand and you can relate to to the book so that's what he brings out in this particular book Right. It it sounds like a very very interesting story, and I was reading an interview where Naipaul said that it's his funniest work, and he's never been able to write like that yes. again. And I love mm-hmm. funny stories. I think that's my favorite sort of uh, mood to read about. And and this book was published a very long time ago. It was published in nineteen sixty one, which is probably just a while before Trinidad and Tobago gained uh, independence mm-hmm. from the British. and uh, it's a very heartfelt story is is what i sort of gathered from from reading about it and i wanted to ask what do you think what kind of a role this this kind of very realist literature what kind of a role did it play and continues to play in highlighting the realities of colonized societies and the spillover that exists even today and there are so many like you said so many colonies what do you think the connection of literature with with this kind of a reality is for the first time 
people like that, people like Chebe, Naipaul, Tutuala, Ngugi, for the first time, what they were doing was letting the voice of the empire be heard. So this was the uh-huh. empire writing back. And, and that was really revolutionary. And, uh, and starting from there, so many have found their voice from the former colonies. And it's, it's amazing. It, it all happened around about the same time frame. I think it was really very important what writers of that age did mm-hmm. because they were the ones who decolonized literature. They were the ones who decolonized the mindset of university people, especially. And they changed the canon because the canon that was there before their time or that they had to study under, that was not, that was a colonial canon. And then and they then, showed, you, you don't have to write like this. You can write differently. You can write from your heart and you can write. It, it's, it's all right um, to write about your own society, your own cultures. And, and that was a great uh, breakthrough that they did. Right. So it was really so, yeah, so essential, so important, so vital that they did that in in that time yeah especially since this book was actually published before Trinidad and Tobago gained independence so when you read these books you understand what the whole you know what the culture was like and and I hope people continue to write like you said and talk about their own realities because this is a very unique sort of setting I haven't really read anything based in in a Caribbean setting from that time so mm-hmm. I look forward to reading right, this right. book as well yeah. even though it's a long one I'll, yeah. I'll take time yeah. and then I no <laughs> it, it'd be worth it <laughs> yeah uh, I'm sure it sounds because like a very fun s- book because you see you see the the humor there is actually very erotic so it, it's not a funny funny book kind but, of like satire uh, it's yeah. there below below the surface surface and that's uh-huh. the best kind of humor Humor in situations. I agree. And humor in yeah, and he's an anti-hero. So you're reading, and you want to have sympathy for the main protagonist, but you get so irritated with him, and then you have to also laugh at the situations he finds himself in. That sort of thing. So that's the kind of humor that is really pretty ironic. It's. Yeah, laughing at oneself. And uh, you see the structures are still in place, the colonial structures. That's why getting the birth certificate was so important. Getting all these, like your Aadhaar card. It was the (laughs) Aadhaar card of their times. So you needed to have that, to have access to anything. So, uh, no, it's, it's funny that we never think uh, today, how how much we've inherited from the colonial system, and how much we still cling to that, like insisting that everyone has an Adar card, and then you can't get rations, for instance, if you don't have that. I'm I'm thinking I'm remembering people, the poorest of the poor, daily wage earners in Nagaland, who cannot get rations because the government insists on. Uh, checking their Aadhaar card and they don't have an Aadhaar card. So 
it doesn't help people when you insist on official things like that. And then uh, people have to come in, like from the churches, and and feed them because because yeah. they fall out of the system. So system doesn't work if it's not catering to everyone, especially to the Absolutely. class. Okay, yeah. okay, I went in a different direction. You can, you can <laughs> no, I would. Uh, I would love back. to have a conversation about that someday because I was just sort of equating mm-hmm. that to the current situation, the the pandemic situation where millions are going hungry because of this exact thing they don't have the documents and they don't have they yeah. can't get russian and and um, the system yeah. itself is such a colonial uh, hangover that we have exactly. the way we exactly. deal with things yeah. so so and i'm exactly. sure this is the case with all the colonies perhaps even in yeah. uh, you know the caribbean colonies in any place which was colonized by the the european powers i would say that there are remnants of that so you've also you've also spoken about how you are quite fond of poetry and fiction by australian aboriginal writers Can you tell me a little bit more about this genre and the stories of, or the poems that have struck you the most would you say that there are parallels between these tales and and the indigenous tales and literatures of india i don't feel qualified enough to make a statement on that but mm-hmm. uh, all all indigenous literatures always find something in common. With Australian poetry, I, I really like the works of the indigenous poets, one in particular, Ujeru Nunukal. See, the, the thing is, I'm located at a place where it's very difficult to get books in English, so I just depend right. on my Kindle, and I don't always get it. Ujeru Nunukal, from what I remember of her poems, she writes much about the landscape and okay. it's not just describing the rivers and the clouds but it's how the indigenous person relates to the landscape so the landscape is different for them it's it's an ancestor and okay. and she yeah she connects to the sky the sky is her father the earth is her mother the trees are her brothers that sort of very organic uh, connection and I find that in her poetry I find that in Native American poetry and it's something that I resonate to because the forests and wooded places those have a very big part in Naga poetry as well Mm -hmm. it's very nature oriented the setting is mostly the setting is uh, the natural world so that is what I find in common with indigenous poets and I appreciate that indigenous part of me is able to appreciate that right right it it reminds me of I was actually doing a course where I was learning Mundari which is one of the tribal languages of Jharkhand and it was this whole course by an organization called Trilingo which is trying to revive indigenous languages and especially with their own communities because the third generation does not know know the language and this just reminded me of that because the teacher was telling me that the the language itself also is built in a way that the sky uh, trees are, are the pronouns used for them are very different yeah, from yeah. the way we speak about them in yeah, English and Hindi. And I was so yeah. fascinated uh, by that because we we don't talk like that. And my no, mother tongue no. is Bengali. 
yeah and and we don't mm-hmm. have that kind of a so it's literally built into the language uh, itself uh, mm-hmm. the connection right. with nature yeah, yeah, yeah. and i found it yes, really yes, uh, yes. really beautiful yes. so are there any other stories that that you remember any other works that you would want to recommend by native writers mm-hmm. from canada or australia or wherever mm-hmm. if people are interested do read the works of uh, edward i i i have a little trouble pronouncing his name i think it's ahenakew but uh, okay. i'll i'll send you a google link it's really sure. lovely yes i don't know which year he was writing in early 1900s or so okay it's really wonderful stuff these kind of stories are very hard to you don't know where to start if you want to read about this so i think the point uh, yeah. of the whole podcast is to get these works out to the public and people who listen mm-hmm. can then go and google and find more stuff so yeah uh, <laughs> finally i'm very excited for this question could you take us on a quick tour through your current bookshelf we would love to hear what your contemporary favorites in diverse literature different kinds of stories are what are you reading now any books that you've read over the last few months what i'm reading now is more research books i'm researching okay second world war history so it's a lot of uh, books on the luftwaffe <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and also on the russian the russian revolution so not okay. not reading anything contemporary for now i've read some wonderful poetry though a book by my friend uh, siddharth dasgupta it's called a movable east and okay. he's written beautiful beautiful poems they're just wonderful he lives in pune and the poems remind me of old pune i call it pune not pune because i really don't like the new name for it then it's i call it pune too Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Iran. I'm from yeah. Pune. Uh-huh. I was born and raised wonderful. here. Wonderful. Oh, absolutely yes. wonderful. Yes. <laughs> so he revives all that and then he takes the reader to Istanbul, to Paris and it's just so nostalgic and beautiful. So that's what I'm reading and that's what I'm relishing actually. <laughs> Oh that's that's uh, lovely. I recommend it's, that. Yeah. I recommend that. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. I think old I think old Pune is is really lovely and I really miss going out and mm-hmm. wandering around the lanes of uh yeah. camp and and yeah. and all those places. Right. So definitely keeping yeah. this suggestion in mind and I I yeah. feel like this is a question that I did want to ask that how do you think the experience of reading translated works shape your own horizons because i personally felt like mm-hmm. it was a completely different experience from reading something written originally in english you have to do a bit of mental gymnastics to get accustomed to yeah. you know the kind of uh, the world if to enter that world and 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 mm-hmm. i would love to hear your thoughts on translated works in general i've read uh, books translated from norwegian into english and um, okay. because i speak norwegian i can see that sometimes the translator has problems in translating a cultural concept into english because yes. the whole problem is the english culture does not have that cultural experience 
And this right. is always a problem that a translator translating into English as a target language faces. The lack not of words, but the lack of experience. So right. when you don't have a cultural equivalent in the target language, then you, you simply cannot translate. And the solution to that is you borrow the native word and you put it into English. And that, that again, that goes back to what we've been saying about the, the features of English. So many cultural words exist in English from other languages because right. of this weakness that you can't translate, that you, you don't have an English equivalent. So you just put the cultural word <laughs> in, in there, the native word in right. like. The word Zulu is there, the, the word Sati is there, because they don't have an equivalent. Sati. Not Zulu. Yeah. No, sorry, not the word Zulu, but a Zulu word is there because meaning does not exist in English. So they English. just borrowed the Zulu word here. Yeah. So this happens a lot, and uh, I see that as the only solution to translating from native languages into English. But yeah. also, it does. It should not stop us translating. It should not stop the act of translating because it's only by translating and it's only through translations that we can enjoy the literatures of other languages. And exactly. uh, I know the region, yeah, regional languages have so much to offer. The poetry from Bengal, it's so beautiful because the Bengali poet talks about flowers that are native to Bengal and he talks about them, talks about the aroma and that brings that into play in, in poetry. And it's only a Bengali poet who can do that <laughs> because that, that is so important to his soul. Exactly. You can't translate yeah. emotions. It's very difficult to, to translate yeah. certain words which, which have a context and which cannot be, you know, which is why it's so beautiful that we can code switch. And while speaking with our friends, yeah. we speak in so many languages at the same time. And right, uh, right. maybe yeah. someday I'll write a book where I'm just code switching all the time yeah. and <laughs> that'll be really fun. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so thank you yeah. so much for, for all of the recommendations mm -hmm. and for all of your beautiful thoughts. I am personally really excited to read uh, the books that you've mentioned and especially the book of poems that you mentioned and I'm going to be trying to get them on my Kindle, especially the Amos one. Very interesting book and I probably wouldn't have ever found out about it if you wouldn't have mentioned it okay. because... I, uh, you know, it's, it's, we, none of us had heard about it. So I think it's, it's incredible. Thanks a mm -hmm. lot. It's for, seminal. Yeah, it, it's yes. really seminal. Yeah. I wish I could have met, met uh, the writer, but that's not going to happen. So, so I'm just yeah. going to have to read, read <laughs> their work and, and, and read their interviews. Yeah. So yeah. thanks a lot, Easter yeah. This was lovely. Thank, Thank you, you too, so much. Senior.